0: Uh, for the last two years, I've gotten uh, the chance to coach Hudson and some little dribblers basketball. And I don't know if you've had the chance to watch five and six year old basketball. Anybody in the room just give a testimony this morning? Okay. It really is more of a play date than a basketball game most weeks. Uh, it's more of a uh, hurting cats, some have called it. Um, there's occasional basketball thrown in there sometimes. Uh, One of the things I've noticed as I've coached is that I'm much more like my dad than I wish to admit. And uh, my dad uh, loved basketball, loves basketball, and my dad also cared a lot. And so there were many weeks as he coached and did all that he did for us uh, that he probably got a little too into it, let's just be honest. And some of you may have had to listen to some of his apologies in the pulpit through the years. Uh, I hope to never get to that place. Um, but a couple times this year, uh, I've gotten a little too into it. Let me just confess that this morning, okay? A couple times, I've, I've just gotten a little too into it. Whether it's a, a ref, whether, I, you know, and we all love the refs. Right? But whether it's a ref or, or my own son just not doing what I've asked him to do. And there's, there's been times that my voice has raised from, from the coaching section over there. And then as soon as that's happened, uh, there's been another voice that was quietly chirped from the stands. And her name is Madison. And uh, there were a couple times that I looked at her as I was not out of line, but just getting a little too animated. And she said, don't. She just, that's it, that's all she had to say, don't. It's like, okay, I gotta back up. It's really easy as a coach of a five and six year old basketball team to make something that is not the main thing, the main thing, right? The main thing for five and six year old basketball is a lot of things, but it's not me being right about a call with a ref. It's not our team winning every game. It's not whatever that I want to make it about. You know what I mean? The main thing is that the kids are having fun, that they're developing, that they're playing basketball, that they enjoy being around their friends. They learn to work as a team. They learn to interact in social environments. And parents and coaches like myself tend to make things that are not the main thing the main thing. That's what we're going to see today in our text. We're in Luke chapter 20. And Jesus is going to confront some religious leaders who have made something that is not the main thing the main thing. They've taken things that are way on the fringes, things that are lesser of importance, things that don't matter as much, and they've put them in the place of supremacy. They're going to have this theological debate, and we're going to have to look at it and deal with it. Um, But really, the end of the lesson today is this. Jesus is going to turn to his disciples, and he's going to say, don't. Like my wife said to me, beware of the scribes. Beware of these who make things that are not the main thing, the most important thing. So let's look at it. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 27. It said, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies... Having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. And afterward, the woman also died. And here's their question. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to or like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and for a a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering plate. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they have contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Let me pray. God, I pray this morning that we would keep the main thing the main thing. God, we would not be those who are distracted by all sorts of other things, who are lured away to worship other things. God, we're not tempted to put other things in your place. God, we're not tempted to to theological arguments over the good news of the gospel god god i pray that we would see what is the most important thing that jesus is the christ who came to rescue us from our sin god and may we spend our time focused on that not on all the other stuff not on all the other things the enemy wants to draw us to god but may we be a gospel focused people um God, I pray that we would not be those who do our good works before men to be seen by men. God, to, to, to be praised, to be honored, God, but that we would be like you, who was a servant to all, who gave up his life for the sake of others. God, I pray that we would um, learn from your example today and your teaching. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Now, if you're like me, sometimes I come to this these the texts and at the beginning of the week and go huh right and, and I came this week and thinking man what is he talking about these, these things are so foreign to us these arguments these theological questions it just seems so detached and, and we're going to have to deal with kind of the context and what he's asking but I really just want us to think today and I want you to see these are people making things that are not the primary main thing they're putting it in the most important place they're random theological belief, their good works, their whatever, their position. They're putting things that are somewhat important in the place of utmost important. So let's start at the beginning, and we'll work through it. Uh, It says, some Sadducees, verse 27, uh, came to him, those who deny that there is a resurrection. So these Sadducees, there's a lot we could say about them, but they are kind of a small group of the whole group of religious leaders. Here's some words to describe them. Influential, wealthy, aristocratic, uh, business-minded. This is where the high priests came from. Uh, many of the Sanhedrin, the judges, and the ruling class. These men are powerful. They're in control. Uh, oftentimes they're political, and they're cooperating with Rome, okay? So these are kind of the the top dogs in their religious society. They're the top of the top uh, in the religious leaders. Now, because of where they sat and because of who they were and their beliefs, they really tended to be focused on earthly political realities, not eternal spiritual realities. Because their job is to rule and reign over the people, that's what they're focused on. And so one of their beliefs is, which seems foreign to us, they do not believe that there is a resurrection. That they don't believe there's eternal life. They think that this is our world, we live in it, and then we're done. They're just, we cease to exist. This is not what the Jews believe, but this is what their ruling class believes. They they basically believe that there is no afterlife, there is no resurrection. And so what they come to Jesus with is a question about the resurrection, which seems odd at first. You're thinking, you don't believe in this, but you're asking about it. And, and here's what they're trying to do: they're trying to have Jesus prove their point to their other religious leaders. That, or they're trying to confuse him and make him say something and stumble upon his words and lessen his power. And so they come to him in verse 28, and it says they ask him a question. And they give this scenario, this command from the Old Testament, and it says, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So, so not only did they not believe in a resurrection, they also believed this. They believed that the first five books of the Bible, we call them the uh, the Pentateuch, is the fancy word for it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The books that Moses wrote. They believed that those were the only real truth in the Old Testament. Everything else, not as much. So they elevated those, said everything else is not, right? We've got a problem if we're elevating one part of Scripture against another, if we're using Scripture to disprove another part of Scripture, okay? Can we agree on that this morning? So so this is a problem, because we believe that God's Word, if it's really from God, is internally consistent. It's the same. He's not going to contradict Himself. He's not going to misspeak and then have to correct it. So what what they're trying to do, they're asking this really obscure theological question about, and it seems genuine, but they're trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're hoping he's going to say something either contradictory or unpopular. And so they ask about what is going to happen to marriage in the resurrection. Do they care? No. They do not care. They're trying to point out the absurdity that we believe or that the Jews believe there is a resurrection. And they're trying to get Jesus to talk through this scenario to show that the resurrection is absurd. And so Moses had given this command in De- Deuteronomy 25. You can go look it up. This was to be their uh, practice in their culture. If, if a husband and wife are married and the husband dies, the brother was supposed to marry Uh, the wife. Why? Why? To take care of her, right? She's a widow, she needs someone to help provide for her and protect for her. They had no kids. That was the intent of the rule, is to be honor and provision for widows. And so they, they create this scenario, verse 29. It says, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. And afterward, the woman also died. What a story. I mean, just what a story. Just everybody dies, right? Just there's all these people and they die. Jesus, what happens, right? But they give this complicated, difficult question of a long line of brothers marrying the same woman with no kids, and the question is, when we get to heaven, whose wife will she be? And you may go, I got no idea. I, have not, I don't know. And this question is meant to be hard. It's meant to embarrass Jesus for being unable to answer it. It's meant to diminish his reputation. And it's also get, meant to have the people hear, hearing it come to their side and think, oh, surely there's no afterlife. Surely there's no resurrection. You see what they're trying to do? You see what the enemy's trying to do? He's trying to distract them from the main thing. He's trying to get them focused on, okay, do we have spouses in heaven? Or do do, do I go back with the ex-wife? Or do I get the new wife? Or do I, like all these thoughts, and you're having them right now. And I've had them this week going, okay, what is this, what's this going to be like? And what they're trying to do is distract from the main thing. And so what does Jesus say? He doesn't answer their question really, not really, as he always does. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus' simple answer to them is, you don't get it. And you won't get it. You don't understand the things of God. You don't understand. And he, he tells them right here, and I'm just going to speak what he says. He says, there is no marrying in heaven. There is no uh, marriage in heaven. Why? Because that's not the reason we're in heaven. That's not the reason we're in heaven. Jesus acknowledges on this earth, in this time, God has given us the family and marriage to multiply and fill the earth. To pass on generational truth, right? That's what he's given us the family for. And he says, in the age to come, that's no longer necessary. You don't understand, right? Now, I know talking about this is causing a lot of questions right now. You're going, am I going to know my spouse in heaven? Am I going to be, are we going to know And I don't have the answers to those questions. So by all means, come ask me. And I'm going to tell you at the end of this, I don't know. Because Jesus doesn't talk about it. I'm not going to (laughs) extrapolate. I'm not going to guess all the details of what heaven should be like. Because that's not the main thing. That's not the main thing. he tells us in verse 36 he says they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection he's telling us this one of the reasons there's no marriage in heaven is because there's no need to repopulate there's no need uh, to repopulate because there's no more death in heaven whoever gets in gets in there's no multiplying and filling heaven no we did that here on earth he says that we will be like the angels who were created and never die. There's really no reason to pass on generational truth because if we're in heaven, we know the truth, and all those who in heaven are in perfect relationship with God. And so Jesus speaks of things that they don't even understand. He he pulls back the curtain a little bit and opens it up, and he stumps them, and he tells them, "Your attempt to stump me is ridiculous." Why? Because they've made things that are not the main thing, the most important thing. And then he kind of turns and he admits one of their beliefs that only the, the first five books matter. In verse 37, it says, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. And so Jesus pulls a passage out of those first five books. It's, uh, it's Exodus 3. And he says that, that God says that he is the God of Abraham who's dead, Isaac who's dead, and Jacob who's dead. Not that he is the God, the God who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's basically making the point, if they no longer existed, then it would say was, not is. So so I don't want want us to spend all of our time here on this. But Jesus is destroying their, their beliefs. He's destroying their wrong beliefs about Scripture. But this is the truth. The Sadducees are silenced. They've come to him with an obscure question about an obscure Old Testament passage in hopes of discrediting him and stumping him. But what happens they end up as the ones who are silenced. Look at verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. The scribes are enemies with the Pharisees, and the scribes are happy that he stumped them. And so they're saying, yeah, teacher, yeah, show them, right? This is so petty. They're just just warring against each other. It's a petty little childish argument. But it says in verse 40, they no longer dared to ask him any questions. They've tried to catch him. We've seen it week after week. They've tried to get him to misspeak. They've tried to get him to speak against Rome. They've tried to get it to stump him. And Jesus just tells them the truth. Jesus speaks wisdom that they cannot understand. And we saw this over and over, and we'll see it right here. The sad part of this story is they don't respond to this truth. Jesus is pointing them to the truth and what happens to their hearts. They get harder and harder and harder. But Jesus continues to present and try to persuade them to himself. And so he turns and he speaks. Look at verse 41. Verse 41. says, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says, and he quotes from the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So Jesus turns from their unimportant uh, sideshow conversations and questions to the main central thing. And the main central thing for them is who is the Messiah? That's what he's trying to bring them back to. Who is the Savior? Who is the Rescuer, the Redeemer, the, the King? Who is that? Because that's the most important thing that you answer. Not, do you have seven wives in heaven or all that sort of stuff. No, he says, who do you say that I am? Right? He brings it back to the central issue. And so this is their belief in, in, in what's put out all throughout the Old Testament. That the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the anointed one, all those words we use, the promised one from Genesis 3 all the way through the Old Testament, they believed, and God had said, that he would be a son of David. He would be a king who would come in the line of David. So this is their belief, that, that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a son of David. Now, Jesus is asking them this. How can you say that when David says this? And here's what David says in the Psalms. And I'm going to switch. It's a little easier if we kind of change some of the pronouns. Look at verse 42. It says, the Lord said, my Lord, sit at my right hand. So this is David speaking. It says, David said, God said to my Lord, the Christ, sit at God's right hand until God makes Christ's enemies your footstool. So David is saying that the Christ is his Lord. And the question is, how can a son of David be the Lord of David? Jesus is meant to stump them. This is a hard question for them. How can this be that that the Messiah, who you think is going to be a son of David, would be David's Lord? And what Jesus is doing here is he's positioning the Christ under David as a son of David, but also as the Lord of David. And what Jesus is trying to get them to understand is this. The Christ, yes, is a son of David, but mostly the Christ is the son of God. He's not just the son of David. No, he is the son of God. That's the only way to answer this riddle that, that Jesus is putting out. And this, again, feels very foreign to us. It feels really abstract and theological and just like, oh, what? This hurts my brain. The Lord said, my Lord, okay, what? Here's the point. Jesus is drawing them back to who do you think I am? Who am I? Am I the Christ? And if you believe that I'm the Christ, then don't harden your heart. If you believe that I'm the one who God sent, then turn and, and repent and come to me. That's the most important thing. Jesus is trying to draw them back. It feels real foreign to us because we're not Jewish and we're not familiar with the Old Testament and all this sort of stuff. It feels really foreign, but Jesus is pleading with them. He's saying come to me. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of David. I'm the Messiah who's been sent here to rescue you. And how do these religious leaders respond to this good news? Hard hearts. They're they respond in unbelief. They're silenced. They continue to stump him. They continue to reject him. This is not how they're meant to respond. How are we meant to respond to the good news? In faith, in belief, in repentance. And so, Jesus, after seeing this, he's been teaching in their temple week after all week long, this last week of his life. He now turns to his disciples and he warns them to not be like these religious leaders. Why? Because their hearts are hard. Because they're rejecting the good news. Because a lot of reasons. Let's read it. Verse 45. It says, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes. It's Beware of the religious leaders who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplaces, in the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus turns to his disciples and he he speaks to them, but he speaks in a voice that everybody can hear. The same religious leaders are all around hearing this too. And he says this main message, beware of the scribes. He's saying, don't follow their example. Don't be like them. Don't do what they do. Beware of them. Don't follow these leaders who have set themselves up with hard hearts, rejecting truth, Not responding to truth. Denying the power of God's word. All these sorts of things. Beware of these people. Right? Why? Because they've made things that are not the main thing. They've made them the main thing. How? He says they like to walk around in long robes. Again, this means nothing to us. (laughs) It means nothing. If you walk around in a long robe, I'm already beware of you. Or whatever that word is. Uh, they are concerned with their appearance. The length of their robe was somehow connected to the amount of righteous deeds that they had. So, so a long robe, the longer your robe, I guess dragging dragon on the ground or a train, meant you were more righteous. He's saying these people are so concerned with their appearance, their, their control, their power, They're all about having others think highly of them and recognize them. He says, beware of that. Don't be like that. He says that they love greetings in the marketplace. Again, that sounds just like they're friendly. That's not what he means. What these religious leaders wanted, they wanted people to recognize them when they were out and about. They wanted people to call them rabbi and teacher and to... to, to, To praise them and to publicly recognize their position and their power, right? They were so concerned about their public appearance, being dignified. There is no humility in these men. There is no servant-heartedness to these men. They are full of themselves and full of pride. He says, beware of them. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They love the places of honor at feasts. They wanted to sit on these elevated platforms. And I realize I'm on an (laughs) elevated platform as I speak this. Okay, anyway. They wanted to sit on these elevated platforms in the synagogue. Why? So that everyone saw them. So that everyone had eyes on them and their long robes. They wanted the best seats at a, at a feast. They wanted to sit right by the host because that was the place of honor. These people are full of themselves. They think that they are the most important person in every room they walk in. And they assume that everyone uh, should bow to them, that they matter more than others. They are not servants. They are not humble in any way. He says, beware of men like this. It says that they devour widows' houses. To be honest, we don't really know the context of what all this means. Uh, We can infer a few things. These men were supposed to be those who served and helped and protected these most vulnerable people in their society, widows. It's come up in the, in the first passage, asking about resurrection, it's about to come up in the next passage. These men are supposed to be those who are helping and protecting and providing for these widows. And instead, apparently, they're devouring widows' houses. They're seeking to make a buck. They're seeking to get ahead on their own, on the backs of the most vulnerable. These men are selfish and greedy, not selfless and sacrificial. Beware of them. He says, for a pretense, they make long prayers. Their prayers are not like the the man who beat his breath and said, God, have mercy on me. Their prayers are long and loud and extravagant. And they're more about having others view them well and hear them well, not actually speaking with God. He says, beware of them and their example. And he finally tells us what the outcome of their life will be. It says they will receive the greater condemnation. What these leaders will get because they've lost focus of the main thing is greater condemnation. This is a principle laid out all throughout Scripture. That those those who God has given authority and position, the more we've been given by God, influence, all those sorts of things, the more we will be judged. The more we will be uh, examined with greater strictness. And he says, These people who I have put in charge of my people have led them astray. They've led them to godlessness, not godliness. Their condemnation is going to be worse. Why? Because they made things that are not the main thing, the main thing. And Jesus turns and immediately he gives an example of one of those things that they've gotten wrong. And he looks at him in 21, verse 1. It says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Jesus is in the temple and he's probably in these outer courts where they, where the people would go and give their gifts and they were these trumpet-like metal things so that when you put money in it clanged and people heard it and all that sort of stuff. And Jesus is sitting there teaching and he looks up and he notices what's happening. All of them would have known this. And he looks up and he notices first who? The rich putting in their offerings in the box. Rich is a word that just means they have more than enough. They have more than enough. And so these people are giving out of their riches. Does Jesus condemn these rich right here? No. So many times we read this passage and go, oh, don't be like the rich. Jesus never condemns them. He he just says they give because they have more than enough. That's okay. Sometimes we have more than enough and we should give. But these people are giving in a system where they think that they're going to get something because of their gift. That, that, that they're going to get blessing or they're going to get uh, a favor from God because they gave more. And then he looks up and what does he see? He notices a poor widow. And you can, you can almost hear it, Right? The others are just dumping buckets of change, right? And it's just loud, and everyone can hear how much they gave. And he he looks over, and there's this maybe a little short older lady who has to reach up, and she drops two little coins in, two little copper coins. It's the equivalent of a penny today. It's the smallest coin that they have. And she too is, is giving to this system because she thinks she's going to get something out of it. She's going to be blessed. And, and she's giving differently than the others, right? It, it tells us that she's giving all that she had. And just like it said earlier, I think it's important and I think Jesus puts these stories together. These religious leaders are doing what? Devouring widows' houses They have created this system where they are dependent on every widow giving the last bit of everything that they have. And these religious leaders are getting rich off of it. By whatever means, they're seeking to profit. And so Jesus looks, verse 3, and he says, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. This widow in their system is forced to put in more than everybody else because it was all that she had. She had to put in everything. The others, they got to put in out of their excess, out of their abundance. For her, this cost everything. For them, it really cost them nothing. You see the point of this? Yes, we can learn about giving from this, but the point of this is beware of the scribes. Beware of those who would even force those poor widows to give everything that they have so that these people can get ahead. How wicked of them to demand this. How wicked of them to lead like that. Yeah, we can learn about giving sacrificially, giving proportionally, giving out of our excess, giving with the right heart, all those sorts of things. But do you see the point of the whole passage? It's beware of the scribes who create a system and lead the people in this way that they don't even care about this poor widow who's having to give everything that she had. It's a real practical example. Disciples, beware of the scribes. Keep the main thing the main thing. See, what they have become consumed with is legalistic observance, showy religion, greedy offerings, not caring for, looking after the least of these, and not belief, not responding to the truth. Jesus. Is presenting two real clear options here. You're either going to believe the gospel the good news and you're going to love God and love people or you're going to be about the show about good works and long robes and market greetings and everybody seeing your good deeds but your heart is far from me. This is it. And Jesus is looking at his disciples saying beware of the scribes. They've made the main thing they've made the main thing not the main thing. So just real quickly as we close, how do we, how does the enemy move us away from the main thing? How are we tempted to make things that aren't the main thing the main thing? I started making a list and I had to stop. So I'm going to tell you my list, but I think the list could go on a long ways. One of these is distractions. We just get distracted with all sorts of other things, distracted with side stuff, distracted with shiny things and loud things and things that are big, not things that are, that are important. We just get distracted. We make things that are the lesser importance, the most important thing. Another way is drama. Drama is making things that are not that important, very important. We tell you, my girls know about some drama. They know how to make a tiny little thing the biggest deal in the history of the world. And I make fun of them, but I've, we can be the same way. We can take things that are not that big of a deal, and we can over-respond and overreact way beyond what's needed. That's making things that are not the main thing the main thing. Maybe it's arguments about opinions and strategy and all that other stuff. Arguing over second and third and fourth important stuff and making it the most important thing and forgetting about the gospel and love for God and love for people and making something else most important. How else does the enemy move us away from the main thing? Sometimes it's idolatry. We worship something that's a created thing that's good and has value, but we put it as the most important thing. We we make the created thing in place of the creator. Sometimes it's materialism. Being overly consumed with stuff and money and appearance and the world's goods. Those things matter. God tells us if we need them to pray for them. But those are not the most important thing. Some of us, it's hobbies and entertainment that we make sacrifices and all kinds of time for all kinds of hobbies and entertainment, right? And we go to any link to make that happen. We won't make sacrifices for the things of God. Sometimes it's busyness that draws us away from the main thing. We just get so busy doing, doing, doing good stuff. Lots of movement, lots of activity, but not really focused on the main thing. I stopped there because I got real convicted. And we could come up with a thousand other things and ways that we're tempted to make things that are not the main thing the main thing. So how can we keep the main thing the main thing? One, we have to know what that is. You've got to answer that question. What's actually the most important thing? And what I'm going to say based on what Jesus has taught us for the last year, belief belief in the kingdom of God, belief in the good news of the kingdom of God, that Jesus came to rescue sinners like me. And then it's loving God and loving people. That's it. That's the main thing. That's the most important thing that we should be focused on. I think we have to also remind ourselves of that. We get distracted. We get focused on other things. We, we get all over the place. And we need to be reminded of that through his word and through his people, right? And I think that's the last thing. We need other people to help us keep the main thing the main thing. You need friends and companions and people around you that are willing to say, hey man, it feels like you've gotten off course. It feels like you've made something else more important than this. We need reminders and we need others to help us on this path. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the truth in it. And I pray that as we uh, just now do a little self-introspection, God, and think about our own lives and think about what we've put in that most important place. What we've said is the most important thing. God, I pray that, God, when we feel conviction, God, that we would repent of that and we would turn back to you, believing that your word, your kingdom, your gospel is the most important thing for us. God, I pray that you would bring us back to yourself, God. God, you want us to walk with you. That's called grace. God, you want us to be near you. God, I pray that we would not be like the scribes, making all sorts of other things the most important thing. God, but may we be like Christ more and more, giving up ourselves for the sake of others, loving you, loving his people, God. God, we pray that um, you would just... Draw us close to you, God. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.